This is HEC Media. Welcome to Talking with Authors, a program dedicated to speaking with some of the best-selling authors around, covering many different genres. I'm your podcast host, Rod Milam, for HEC Media. With the help of independent bookstore Left Bank Books and the St. Louis County Library, we're able to sit down with amazing writers and thought leaders to discuss their work, their inspiration, and what makes them special. By the way, you can also watch video versions of most of these interviews by going to hecmedia.org. Now, after the initial weeks of the coronavirus global shutdown, we were able to set up remote interviews with many authors. Now, sound quality might be slightly different than our previous podcasts, but they still contain the same great content that you've come to expect. Today, our guest is author Elise Hooper. We spoke with her via Zoom in September of 2020 about her third and newest book, Fast Girls, by publisher HarperCollins. Elise Hooper is a writer of historical and biographical fiction. She's taken on the subjects of women in different periods of history in all of her work, such as the real women of the novel Little Women and early 20th century documentary photographer Dorothea Lange. In Fast Girls, she focuses on the story behind some of the women on the U.S. Olympic team that competed in the Summer Games of 1936 in Berlin. But I have found that family members of these women are so excited. These women they've admired for so long are finally getting a moment in the sun. So that's been really exciting. I think so many of these women's stories have really not been told. I mean, we've read about Boys in the Boat or maybe Unbroken and Louis Zamperini, but there were women at these 1936 games and their stories are really amazing. And we'll get into detail about three of these athletes and their individual paths to Germany, along with a story about finding the stories when we start our conversation with writer Elise Hooper on this edition of Talking with Authors from HEC Media and HEC Books. Here's our host and interviewer this time, Ashley Hasty. Okay, well, first of all, Elise, I am so happy to be able to interview you again. Oh, it's so fun. I'm, I'm delighted to connect with you. It feels like just yesterday we were in uh, Jefferson City talking about learning to see. That's right. It seems like not that long ago, but man, times were so different then. They really were. All right. So I'm sure there are some viewers who have not yet read the book. So could we start off with your synopsis of the book's plot? Sure. So Fast Girls is historical fiction. It's based on the lives of three real women track stars of the late 1920s and 30s. And these three women uh, will come together to race in Hitler's 1936 Berlin Olympics. And so they are pioneers and trailblazers. And um, this book has been a wonderful adventure for me. I've learned so much working on it. I remember the first time you told me you were working on the Fast Girls. You were in Missouri researching Helen Stevens, and I was so disappointed in myself for not knowing who she was. And later that night, I asked my dad if he'd heard of her, and he was like, that kind of sounds like the Fulton Flash. So I was a little relieved that she hadn't been completely lost to history. Do you remember the first time you heard about Helen Stevens? Well, that's a good question. Honestly, I... I found her while I was working on my research. And, and I don't remember the actual moment I came across her, but I can say that I was sort of stunned when I first found these three women and their stories because they really are amazing. And, and it really all came together because my youngest daughter is a swimmer and she was working on a biography project for her library class at school. She was in fourth grade and, and she picked a woman named Gertrude Ederly 
for her this project. And I had no idea who Ederly was. Do you, do you know who she is? No. no. Okay. So she was an Olympian, a woman Olympian. She went to Paris in 1924 and won three medals in swimming. And of course, for most of us, three Olympic medals would be quite an accomplishment and we'd be done. But Gertrude Ederly was just getting started and she decided she was going to become the first woman to swim the English Channel. It took her two tries, but she did it. And it took her 14 and a half hours. And she came home to New York, feted as an American hero. There was a ticker tape parade for her in Manhattan. President Woodrow Wilson called her America's best girl. She was a bona fide celebrity of her times. And yet here I was, probably 2018, I had never heard of her. And so she inspired me to start looking into the lives of other women athletes because I have played sports my entire life and I'm embarrassed to admit I've taken much of my athletic career for granted. Um, I can join a 5 or 10K or a marathon without thinking about it. I can go out for a run and not be worried about being heckled. I can um, do all these things that women couldn't always do. Again, I sort of had no idea of this. So I started digging around and I do have a long history with running. And so I, I think I first found um, maybe Betty Robinson and then Helen though, her story is so compelling. And I really believe she is a woman we would all know of. I think she would be a household name. I'd like to believe that. If uh, World War II hadn't led to the cancellation of the 1940 Olympics and 44, I really think in 1936, she was just getting started and we had so much more to take away uh, from her amazing career. Unfortunately, it was cut short as an Olympian because of the World War. But she is just such a fascinating figure and, and we'll be talking about her more, I assume. So it's clear that you did extensive research. When you read the book, you could just see it all about Helen Stevens as well as Betty Robinson and Louise Stokes. Um, can you tell us a bit more on how you conducted your research and some of the artifacts you were able to see? Sure. Well, I was really grateful to Helen's biographer, um, Sharon Kinney Hansen, who invited me out to Missouri, took me to Fulton to see where Helen lived much of her life. And um, I went to the Historical Society in Columbia and was able to visit the Helen Stevens collection. And there I was able to hold her size 12 track shoes, which was amazing. I was able to read through her handwritten diary of Berlin, those Olympics. Um, you know, she kept such an amazing, I actually think her brother was a big help in keeping her scrapbooks. So she has everything from her luggage tags on the for the ship to Berlin and home um, to fingerprints that I think she needed to get her passport to great old newspapers from um, her high school, the high life. And um, of course, there's a photo that's now quite famous of, um, of, Helen with Adolf Hitler himself in Berlin right after she has won her first gold medal. And so there were such a range of wonderful things uh, and then just so much of it. It was, you know, there's nothing as satisfying as when you're writing historical fiction as being able to visit the place where your characters live and, and see things that, that were important to them, hold things that, that they might have once held. That, there's just really nothing that tops that. I mean, I'm so grateful for the internet and all the things I can access through it and all the wonderful librarians and archivists who came to my rescue and scanned things, yearbook pages and things like that and sent them to me. But there's really nothing quite the same as actually going and visiting and kind of seeing the artifacts of your person firsthand. 
Do any of the athletes have surviving family members you were able to interview? Yes. So specifically Betty Robinson's family was very helpful. They shared lots of photos with me. Um, In the case of Helen, her biographer was a big help. Louise, I was trying to track down her son. I was never able to do so, but I was able to connect with um, some other friends and family of some of the women from this book, including, this is kind of a funny postscript of what happened after the book came out, but um, One of the women who gets just a passing mention, she was a teammate of Louise, Helen, and Betty's um, for 1936, Gertrude Wilhelmsen. She is a woman who shows up later in the book. She's had a baby right before Berlin, and yet her husband still urges her to go and compete. I love how progressive he was for his time. Her family, it turns out, lives right down the street from me. They're neighbors, and I had no idea of this. And they recently... um, uh, found themselves in the possession of Grandma Gertie's things. So all again, all these wonderful scrapbooks. There's a Nazi ring, photos. She herself wrote a small little memoir of her own sporting career that's about 10 uh, typewritten pages I was able to read. So it's funny how the adventures kind of keep coming with this book, even since its release. But I have found that members of the family members of these women are so excited. These women they've admired for so long are finally getting a moment in the sun. I've gotten several emails from various family members of of different Olympians who weren't necessarily in my book, but they're kind of excited to read about it and want me to know about their grandmother. So that's been really exciting. I think so many of these women's stories have really not been told. I mean, we've read about Boys in the Boat or maybe Unbroken and Louis Zamperini, but there were women at these 1936 games and their stories are really amazing. Uh, What is the most interesting fact you learned about the athletes or the Olympics while conducting your research? Well, honestly, Ashley, I I could spend the rest of the week talking to you about this question because (laughs) This story, there was so much for me to learn. But one thing I will tell you is, so I've talked about how remarkable Helen Stevens' athletic accomplishments were, but Betty Robinson, who was one of her teammates, has a truly also remarkable story that I cannot believe I had never heard of. And really, so women aren't allowed to compete in track and field until 1928. Um, The first modern Olympics is held in 1896, Women weren't allowed to be there. 1900, a handful of women are allowed to compete in just a few events that were considered aesthetically pleasing. So we're talking about tennis, um, golf. Over the years, like archery and fencing are kind of early sports. Swimming and diving are eventually added. But track and field was considered quite low class. No one wanted to see tired looking women. That's a direct quote. (laughs) And so women aren't given permission to participate until 1928. And that's on a trial basis. I think they're allowed five events in 1928. And so Betty Robinson is this 16-year-old schoolgirl in Chicago. One day she is running for the train and a teacher thinks she looks fast and holds a time trial for her. Like the next day, she has such a remarkable time. He encourages her to compete in a local race, which she does. And within five races, she finds herself in this inaugural Olympic team, such was the trajectory during this time period. (laughs) You could go from just not even knowing about running to becoming an Olympian all within the space of a few months. Betty arrives in Amsterdam in 1928, and she's a real underdog. I mean, there are women from other parts of the country who have been running more extensively, but Betty has this real upset. And this all happens in the first few pages of the book, so I'm not giving anything away. She wins a gold medal. She then wins a silver in the relay. 
Like Ederly, she returns home to the United States, is feted as America's sweetheart. But then, only a couple of years later, she is up in a small biplane, kind of just up there for fun with a family member, and they crash. And Betty's found in the wreckage and truly believed to be dead. Someone tosses her in the back of a truck. It's not till she is discovered on the undertaker's table at the morgue. He sees her chest moving and he realizes she's alive. He alerts the doctors and they eventually revive her. She's extensive injuries. And they tell her, you'll be lucky to ever walk again, much less run, give up your any Olympic dreams of 1932 or beyond. But Betty was a woman who did not take no very easily. And she has this what is really an amazing comeback story that I had never heard of. I mean, I really think that's got to be one of the most remarkable comeback stories because she will come back and race in 1936 in the Olympics in Berlin that we've never heard of. How have we never heard of Betty Robinson, right? So that was a story in itself that is just so remarkable. And then you added Helen and Louise Stokes. And and this is just such a, a fascinating story. I think sports give us a mirror, uh, such an interesting way to look at kind of a larger society. Sports often give us that kind of that glimpse into what life was like for people at a certain time period. And, and this gives us a really vivid look at women's lives in the 1930s. Betty's story and her crash, um, in that small plane, like still haunts me. We have a family friend who is learning to fly and my husband went up with them a couple of days ago. And that is the first thing I thought of was like, oh, please don't relive Betty's experience. Yeah. Yeah, it is a really a remarkable uh, comeback story. Is there anything you learned about one of the athletes that you wanted to include in the book, but just couldn't find a way to fit it into the story? There are so many, again, I mean, there were so many fascinating athletes from this era. One thing, though, that I was just talking to a book club last night, and they hadn't made this connection, and and it was hard to figure out how to gracefully make it in the book, so sometimes I just add it when I'm talking to people, but Mac Robinson, who in my novel, in Fast Girls, ends up being a, having a bit of a romance with Louise Stokes, our third third main character. Um, Matt Robinson was actually Jackie Robinson's older brother. And Jackie Robinson, of course, was the pioneering baseball player. Well, his brother, Mac, was an Olympian. But I, I think Jackie gets much more press and attention. But Mac was a very accomplished track and field athlete himself. Fast Girls came out in the midst of the Black Lives Matter protests, and it includes some of the racism that Louise Stokes experienced. What was it like to read and write about Louise's experiences, which occurred before either of us were born, and then now experience the Black Lives Matter protests right as the book debuted? Well, so Louise's story is so interesting. And to be honest, hers is the... I knew the least about Louise going into this. And what I mean by that is... Helen and Betty have biographies written on them. Um, You can find a fair amount of stuff on them on the internet. But Louise, she's been really what I call the erased Olympian, where there's just not much on her, even just an image search. So Louise was this young black woman growing up outside of uh, Boston in Malden, Massachusetts. There was um, a community of of, uh, black families who lived in Malden. Many of them were the descendants of slaves from the American South. But they find their way to Malden and they they end up with a, a very energetic church community. And that church community will be important for Louise later in the book when she needs sponsorship to get to some things. They will rally to her cause and, and raise money for her. But, you know, Louise doesn't leave behind a diary. There are no biographies written on her. I mean, women in general tend to have left lives 
that were less documented than men's. And Louise, as a Black woman's, of course, is even less than probably many of her white peers. And so there was a reporter from the Boston Globe who had written a story on Louise in the late 70s um, on her accomplishments. And I was able to track him down. And he sent me this amazing file he accumulated over the years uh, from small local newspapers in Malden. And, and he had found them all on microfiche. I mean, he saved my eyesight. It would have taken me so long to recreate this file. And he was generous enough to send it to me. Um, Glenn Stout is his name. And so I was able to sort of piece together parts of her story. But it's been so remarkable, given what we've seen happening in the last few months, to I've really come to see Louise as such a central figure to the story, although her history really is, it has been erased. Um, the struggles she will face, and I should add too, there, so Louise is the one of two of the first black women to qualify for an American Olympic team. The second was Tidy Pickett of Chicago. Tidy and Louise will come together in 1932, and they'll, face many obstacles, some of which they may have predicted, some they don't see coming at all, in trying to um, earn and then maintain their space on this relay team. And so, and I even have a bunch of photos that will show you, they're all candidates from 1932 and six, and they really reveal all these white faces Louise and Tidy aren't in any of these. And so even within that sort of time period, you know, they, their stories are really marginalized. And so learning about Louise and now putting her struggles in a greater context that we're seeing now, systemic racism, it's been really fascinating. And, and to be honest, I banked on Tokyo 2020, uh, the Olympics that were supposed to happen this summer, being the vehicle for me to talk about this book. But really, racism plays a huge part of the story as well. And so with everyone's interest in Black Lives Matter and, and really shining a spotlight onto hidden stories from the past, Louise is more relevant than ever. And her story is one of the most compelling aspects of the story, even though she is really thwarted in both 32 and 36 in achieving her Olympic dreams. Um, I think that sort of the unfinished quality of her Olympic dreams really reveal so much of the time. So she, to me, I, I learned so much working on her story and I continue to learn so much just thinking about what she must have faced and learning about other athletes right now and the challenges they face with sexism and racism. Coming up in a moment, we'll continue to hear from Elise Hooper about Fast Girls and we'll hear the truth about her writing process. And here I was just saying how much I love to sit down and write every day. That is kind of a lie. I'm going to take that back because sometimes I, I really dread it and I'm not sure what I'm going to do and I have anxiety, but I always love it once I'm done. <laughs> so maybe that's it. In retrospect, I love every day of writing. At the actual start, if you were to ping me and say, how's it going today? I might be telling you I'm spending this hour just moving commas around. That's how it feels some days. That and some of the advice that she gives to aspiring writers and a peek into her coming work when Talking With Authors continues from HEC Media. Educate Today offers an ever-growing library of the highest quality video resources, curriculum materials, and interactive programs, all of which are designed to challenge thinking, inspire creativity, and empower learning of students, educators, parents, and lifelong learners. And you can find out more about all these programs by going online to educate.today. That's educate.today. You've written books set in a couple of different time periods, uh, including the late 1800s for the other Alcott, 
and learning to see in fast girls are both sets like pre-world war ii leading into the war do you have a favorite time period to write about you know, it's not the time period. I would think there's clearly something about me right now in the 30s, but it really is usually the themes that draw me to these books much more than the time period. I mean, honestly, there are so many fascinating stories out there. Uh, so it, it really is almost, it, it's like the chemistry of really just finding someone who I'm willing to spend several years, like immersing myself in their story and their life. That's what really drives the decision for me um, about what I'm going to write about more so than the time period. Um, although I will say there is something, I mean, stories from the 20th century are really fun in the sense that there can be video from those, um, certainly a lot more photography. So there is something that makes the 1900s um, much more, I mean, they're much more easily accessed, of course, than, than history before that, I would have to say. So the current book I'm working on right now um, is set mostly in the 40s, but it has a little bit of a framing device that's set in the 60s to make a connection with um, what was happening in Vietnam and, and then also some wars that had come before that. So, and as I said, I, the 1940s, I'm giving you a clue there, I, I'm writing about World War II. So, so the 60s provides me a little bit of a bridge there. Uh, what is your process from the first spark of an idea to submitting your first draft? Are you a planner or a pantser, as they say? I'm definitely a bit of both. I always have an outline and I'm really pretty solid usually on where I'm starting with a book and where I'm ending, but it's kind of finding my path from the beginning to the ending that I spend a lot of time on. And I would have to say that it really, um, each book has presented me with kind of its own special journey. And so I, I do usually end up, I write kind of a, like usually about a 30 page synopsis of whatever I'm working on. And I share, you know, my editor reads that and we talk through the character's uh, emotional arc and any plot points. And then I often really have kind of a, a much more specific outline I'm working with. I work in Scrivener, um, which is some writing software and I love it from an organizational standpoint. It's very easy to move um, files around and files can be chapters or scenes. Um, but I do like the visual of having things up on my wall and moving things around. So you can see I'm definitely someone who, who plots everything out, but I always love the good creative surprise that comes along and, and characters never fail, no matter how much I think I have us on a course, they never fail to surprise me, which sounds so weird because they're of course created by me, but you know, suddenly I'll be writing and, and the dialogue will take a turn I didn't really expect and didn't see coming. And suddenly my characters have kind of a new challenge on their hand. And to be honest, that is what I love about this job. That is such an exciting part of the creative process. And, and I really think that's why a lot of us do it is to surprise ourselves because I, I really think if you can surprise yourself, you're going to surprise your reader. So that is a lot of the fun to me. Your first two novels were focused on a single protagonist, May Alcott and Dorothea Lange, respectively. But Fast Girls had three primary <laughs> protagonists. Uh, it seems having multiple protagonists might complicate the process a little bit. Is that true? Did you have, uh, did having multiple protagonists change your process at all? 
Yes, it does. It does. It makes things much more complicated, honestly. The sort of braiding of multiple main characters together is a complicated process. I think it can be a really rewarding process, both for me as the creator, but also for readers. I think it, it can really broaden the story considerably. Um, and so, you know, I've been asked, I mean, in the case of Fast Girls, a lot of people want to know why the story, like, why I didn't just stop with Betty. Her story is so extraordinary that, I mean, why isn't she just the main character? But I really felt that it was important to show a real range of experience in getting to the Olympics. And, and between Helen, um, Helen is a real outcast at the beginning of the story until she really discovers um, what an amazing track star she is. She just was not like the other girls in her community. And she was a real tomboy. And so her story is one of real transformation. Um, and which is different from Betty, who sort of starts as America's golden girl, and then experiences a real challenge and has to kind of dig her way out of it. And then we have Louise, who's just constantly encountering challenge after challenge. And so I liked that. I think that readers, there's something there for everyone to, to connect with. And so while it is a very complicated, I mean, I did, I'm often asked if I wrote the three stories separately and then braided them together, or if I wrote them um, kind of as I went along. And I, it's the latter. I really pictured my structure with this book as a relay race, which I always like when sort of form and function meet. And, you know, each each athlete is kind of telling her story and then passing the baton on to the next and for a chapter. And then that story happened. And then there, and, and that made a lot of sense to me in this book. Um, with that said, in the book I'm working on now, I did have one main character and then wrote a rough draft and thought, I need a second one to show a flip side of this. So I am actually now kind of writing a second main character story. And, and I know my touch points of how they connect, but um, so in short, each book can be a totally different experience. <laughs> I love that visual of the relay. That's yeah. really, that's a cool way to think about the way the book was written. I mean, it really worked for me. I really could picture, like, when I would end a chapter with Helen, I knew straight where I was picking up with Louise. So it really worked for me the entire time. Has your process changed between writing and publishing your first novel versus this one, your third? Um... You know, I think the biggest thing that has changed is just the current climate with dealing with a virtual book launch. I mean, that has been a real, uh, something I never saw coming, like most of us, I think. Um, and it's been a real adjustment, but I think it's, it's really been rewarding in many ways because I can broaden my reach, for example, and come and chat with you while um, you're in a totally different part of the country and we can connect with other readers um, who might be from all over. So so there have been some real upsides to it, but the, you know, the day-to-day -day of writing is the same. Ultimately, you are looking for a compelling story, a wonderful character who, as I said earlier, you just want to spend time with. And it's the daily discipline of sitting down and exploring that story. That's what it is. So while some of it, you know, three main characters, one main character, two main characters, three Olympic, you know, all these different settings may change. Um, it's, always kind of the same process at the end of the day. And I, and I love it. I mean, to me, it's just so much fun how it does change a little bit, but at the same time, the predictability of, I love to sit down and write every day. You mentioned that the surprising yourself is one of your favorite parts of writing. Do you have a, a least favorite part of writing or being an author? 
Well, I think there's a great quote out there, which, um, and here I was just saying how much I love to sit down and write every day. Sometimes I actually, that is kind of a lie. I'm going to take that back because sometimes I, I really dread it and I'm not sure what I'm going to do and I have anxiety, but I always love it once I'm done. <laughs> so maybe that's it. In retrospect, I love every day of writing. At the actual start, if you were to ping me and say, how's it going today? I might be telling you I'm spending this hour just moving commas around. That's how it feels some days. Um, so... Uh, I love the process of that first draft where you can just be so messy and just start throwing everything together, getting, getting your story down. Like you're just in such kind of the heat of this story. That's a really exciting part. Whereas then sometimes like the real nitty gritty of editing can be a challenge when you're really tearing your hair out about um, getting some things to line right up or um, really trying to figure out some aspects of the research that can be, that can be a challenge, but Again, when you figure it out, it's always so rewarding. It's all worth it. <laughs> I know you also teach writing courses. What advice would you give an aspiring author? I always say I think reading is such an important part of writing. I, I know some writers say that while they're working on a project, they really can't read anything outside of maybe the research they're doing for their book. But that's not me at all. I'm constantly reading. Um, you know, at a certain point in the evening, I put away whatever I'm working on, even if it's the research books I have to read through. And I just pick up something totally different. And for me, that's so important. And I think there's always something to be learned from all different kinds of books, be it about structure or theme or writing dialogue, setting. I just love that. And I'm always kind of stealing ideas from how other authors have tackled problems or figured things out. I love having a really wide library in my brain to kind of draw upon for figuring things out and how to and how to try um, tackling a new story. Well, thank you so much. There's one last question. You hinted a little bit at the project you're working on now. Can you tell us a bit more about your next book? Yes, yes. So my grandfather served in World War II in the Pacific. And I really um, have wanted to know more about what he did. And so I started digging around and, you know, often I find where you start with one book isn't where you actually end up landing on any book. So, so I started off exploring the um, Pacific theater and wanting to know more about it. And while my grandfather was, his service was more geared in Japan and he was on the USS Missouri when MacArthur signed the peace treaty with the Japanese. And he went into Tokyo with MacArthur and one of the first trips by Americans into Tokyo. Um, I actually then, while reading all this stuff about the Pacific Theater, found the story about these U.S. Army nurses who are in the Philippines. So my grandfather never went to the Philippines. So this is where things started to diverge from where I started. Um, and this was just such an amazing story where these women, many of them were just kind of American farm girls from all over the country who, this is the 30s, of course, think about leading up to the war. They were maybe tired of living on the farm. I mean, life was hard during the Great Depression and they saw nursing school as an affordable opportunity, it was much cheaper than college, of maybe leaving farm life and trying something different. So many of these farm girls went to nursing school and then ended up signing up with the army because you could travel all over the world. And so many of these women chose the Manila, which was the Pearl of the Orient at the time. It was a really coveted place to go. And so these women were there 
And they are living the life when the novel opens. <laughs> you know, they're playing tennis and swimming in pools and having a lovely time. And then um, the same day Pearl Harbor is bombed, the Japanese Imperial Army launches uh, bombs and, and eventually an invasion of the Philippines. And these women end up serving on the front lines during uh, the war. And then they're taken as prisoners of war and they spend several years in captivity. Uh, but it is an amazing story of recovery and resilience and hope. Um, and, and so I am so deep into the story right now and, and I'm finding it gives a lot of perspective for what we're dealing with right now. I mean, the uncertainty of these women, I mean, we now know, of course, World War II ends, but they didn't really know how their life, how things were gonna end in this story. And so um, being able to channel the uncertainty of today, I think has made me really empathetic to these characters. And then also it's just been really um, comforting to think that we as Americans, have lived through hard times before and we will continue to endure. And so I'm taking a lot of um, hope from this current story. So again, I think it's a really inspiring story and I'm eager to share it with readers in about a year. <laughs> It'll be ready sometime in fall of 21. Well, thank you, Elise. It was so good to see you again. I hope that we can get together in person again soon, but I really appreciate you taking the time to do this interview. Well, I always love chatting with you, Ashley. Thank you so much. And I'm really grateful to everyone who's tuned in to hear a bit about Fast Girls and um, maybe learn some things and see how, while we like to think things, a lot of things have changed since the 30s, there are a lot of themes that are very relevant still to today. That's writer of historical and biographical fiction Elise Hooper on her future work and her most recent book, Fast Girls, by publisher HarperCollins when we spoke with her in September of 2020. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Talking With Authors. Remember, you can watch most of the episodes of this program by going online to hecmedia.org. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for Talking With Authors on all social media platforms. And if you haven't done so yet, please rate and review this program wherever you get your podcasts. The host and producer of the video version of this program was Ashley Hasty. Supervising producer was Julie Winkle. Production support by Jane Ballou and Christina Chastain. HEC Media Executive Director is Dennis Riggs. The Talking With Authors podcast executive producer is Christina Chastain. Podcast audio editing by Paul Langdon. And I'm Rod Milam, your podcast producer and host. Special thanks to The Novel Neighbor. Again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. This is HEC Media. You wake up. You get dressed. You prepare for a day of challenging and inspiring young minds. But maybe all you get is frustration and anxiety. You are a teacher. In the Classroom Matters podcast, we discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of education. We talk to people such as Kim Bearden, co-founder of the Ron Clark Academy, Ken Williams, creator of Unfold the Soul, teacher of the year Beth Davey, and so many more insightful educators. Because your voice matters, your experience matters, your classroom matters. Classroom Matters with Christy Houle, a new podcast from Educate.today. Subscribe and download now.